From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. And uh, just a quick warning before we get started, there's some swearing in this episode. There's a classic crime and redemption narrative that goes like this. A person starts out life on the wrong path, a path of crime and violence. There's a turning point where the person learns the error of their ways, and then a long time spent cast out from society, where the person reflects on what they've done. And then, if they're lucky, redemption comes in some form or another, as a pardon, as a new relationship, as a new chance, and a new life. That's the classic narrative. Real life doesn't usually follow that template too closely. Today's guest, though, his story comes close. In many ways, his is the classic redemption story, but with a surprising and unclassic twist. We'll get to that twist later in the episode. First, let's meet my guest, a man named Erlon Woods, a name that might be familiar to some of you listening to this podcast and provide a clue to what that twist will be. Erlon grew up in South Central Los Angeles in the 1980s, and there's a lot of violence in the neighborhood. Erlon's older brother got into the drug trade. Erlon followed him. When he was 13 or 14, Erlon started selling joints on the street for a dollar apiece, which escalated to selling crack, getting involved with gangs, and eventually robbing other drug dealers. In 1988, he got arrested for one of those robberies, was tried as an adult, and sent to prison, which meant leaving behind his mom, who Erlon says was his rock growing up the one who worked long hours to make ends meet and still made time to go to his football games. What was your mom saying about all this at the time? Uh, Which part? Me going to jail? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I would say that I'm fairly certain that, you know, my activities along with my brother's activities, uh, my mother lost a lot of sleep dealing with us, you know. Mm. Um, And then I can also say my mother probably even though she didn't wish um, jail on any of us, she kind of sort of knew that we were safe. Not that she didn't know the dangerousness of prisons, but she kind of felt that we were pretty safe. You know, we knew we weren't in the streets, you know. Um, so, a, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, and it's true, too. It's true, that's a heavy you know? choice, man. That's a heavy it's, choice. It's, it's, it's a very heavy choice, but the reality of it is... Um, she could have been right, you know? People that, died that. more outside of prison than inside. Correct. When you live in, like, the street life, you know, um, some people say every day could be your last. And that's true because you you involved in a total different lifestyle. You involved yeah. in a lifestyle you always see on the news. Right. And for me, you know, I was involved in gangs. So I just went to prison and continued the gang-banging, you know, trade in prison, you mm-hmm. know, uh, being involved in uh, assaults on fellow prisoners or assaults on correctional officers. But mm-hmm. I found myself in just, I'm talking about like just getting into all kind of stuff, you know. Right. And I went to the security housing unit, which is pretty much solitary confinement, uh, a couple of times based on my activities in prison. And I didn't pick up on it then, but my mother said the most deepest shit to me in a letter. She said, baby, how you go to jail in jail? And that was like, damn. (laughs) 
damn, just break me down, break me down. All right, it's me, you know. And it was like a, it was like basically letting me know, like, you on the wrong path. You went right. to jail in jail, you know, like, it's not, that's not good. Right. But, you know, um, when I got out of prison at, uh, after six years, three months, uh, hadn't learned nothing in prison, didn't get my GED, didn't complete a trade, didn't do none of that, just went in jail and got out. Huh. And when it, when it boils down to it, you basically limit yourself to a skill set that you feel you know more about. And in my situation, it was dealing with, you know, selling drugs or robbing drug dealers. Mm -hmm. So it was easy to get back into it. And Erlon did get back into it and continued on that path for years. Until one day, he says, something happened that brought him face to face with how dangerous and destructive a path it was. It was two days after Christmas, 1997. Erlon and some friends had gotten themselves involved in a complicated scheme to con a drug wholesaler out of some money, a scheme that required Erlon and his crew to steal a car. They'd driven up on a guy who'd just parked his car and was getting out. But when Erlon pulled his gun and knocked the guy down, the guy's wife started screaming. So Erlon and his friends decided to get out of there. They drove off. Shortly after that, they came to what seemed like a routine traffic checkpoint. But instead of just waving them through, the officers asked them to pull over. They was like, throw the keys out the window. And we was like, ah, this ain't a regular traffic stop. Right. So um, the decision came to, hey, man, let's get up out of here. You know what I'm saying? So uh, the guy that was driving, which was one of my co-defendants, um, he take off. So you're running from the police now at this point. So they're, they're saying, yeah. come out, throw your keys on the ground, come out. And in that moment, you're like... We're, we're, we're gonna drive this thing away. gonna look good. Let's uh, let's let's get rid of this gun. Mm. So that was that was the mentality at the moment. Okay. And we took off, and in the process of taking off, uh, we was doing maybe 80, 90 miles, and the car crashed on a corner. We jumped out and ran, and upon us jumping out running, the Manhattan Beach Police Department. Shot at us 41 times. And I got shot. Um, and I was caught maybe about a block away, hiding under a truck. A police dog is what found me. Mm -hmm. And being that I was shot, the paramedics came to the scene. And as they were working on me, the... Uh, paramedic said, uh, it don't look good for one of your friends. And I was like, I didn't know who he was talking about. But when I got to the hospital, uh, I was talking to the doctor and uh, the officers came and they brought me a picture of my friend Furman. He got shot five times in the back and he was, he was deceased at this time. And when I seen the picture and just seen him, I was, it, it just, it, it was hurtful. It was yeah. My dude, Furman Little, that was like one of my best friends. You know, we grew up together. Uh, he had a one-year-old son, and his wife was pregnant with uh, uh, his daughter, and he, and he also had another little son. And um, yeah. it was hard. What would you, you do? Uh, I just was sitting there thinking, like, how am I going to? 
uh, relate this information to his wife, you know? And, um, and I seen they had a phone on the wall. And I was like, man, I got to call her. So I picked it up and called Collect. And um, I got Furman's wife on the phone. And as I was basically telling her that her husband um, was killed, um, I, I, I literally heard the phone hit the wall and break, you know? And and I think, you know, with me thinking about his sons, he had two sons and his daughter that hadn't been born yet. It was like, this guy done lost his life over some bullshit. Why have an individual been on this path? Like, what was all this shit for? And that's that was the beginning of my mind change, you know, and in that moment, you know, that was the turning point right there. Erlon was convicted of second-degree attempted robbery. It was his third felony charge. And so, under California's three-strikes law, Erlon was sentenced to 31 years to life. After losing his friend Furman and now facing what could be a lifetime in prison, Erlon took a hard look at the way he'd been living. He was determined to make this prison term very different from the first one. He stayed out of trouble, he got his GED, spent a lot of time in the law library looking for ways to appeal his conviction. He even started reading up on government codes to figure out how to reform California's three strikes law. Just in general, Erlon says he was always on the lookout for productive ways to serve his time. And one day, a program came on TV that caught his eye. It was called San Quentin Film School, a documentary on the Discovery Channel about a filmmaking program at San Quentin Penitentiary a prison with a long and notorious history, but that was becoming known for its progressive programming for inmates. Erlon was captivated and set his sights on getting to San Quentin. He requested a transfer, and after several years, it finally came through. When I got to San Quentin, I'm like, cool. So I seen the same dude that I had seen on um, TV named Troy. I seen him. I'm like, what's up, man? He was like, what's up, man? I was like, man, you know, what's up with the with the film school and all that? He was like... Uh, they don't do that no more here. That's over. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, yeah. He was like, yeah. He say, but uh, part of the deal was they left all the equipment so we can continue to try to learn this stuff. And I was like, that's what's up. And he invited me down to the to the media center. And I was like, cool. Uh-huh. And that's where um, it was a totally different environment. You know, like you had computers with um, editing software. Uh, and I was able to like just jump right in and just learn stuff. Learn first iMovies, then Final Cut Pro. So that's what that's what we were doing in the media center. And so Erlon started spending as much time as he could in the San Quentin Media Center. Whenever he wasn't confined to his cell or in some other mandatory prison activity, he was there. And at this point, Erlon's actual real life narrative is mapping pretty accurately on top of that classic one. He's undergone his transformative experience, losing his friend Furman, and he spent a decade-plus in prison reflecting on what he's done. But here is where the redemption story takes a surprising turn, when he gets introduced to a prison volunteer named Nigel Poor. She was a professor of uh, this college program called PUP, which stands for Prison University Project. Mm -hmm. Nigel was a professor of photography there. And... um, Nigel came over to the media center where she, you know, she came over and, you know, they started talking about the projects that they, you know, wanted to do. And 
they started working on audio programs. Nigel uh, created like this little show called Windows and Mirrors where, you know, she would I interview dudes in there just about like school, mm-hmm. uh, running track, food, type of food you make, you know, which it was just small. But then the local um, Bay Area uh, news station, KLW, heard about it and they start coming in to actually just teach individuals how to do radio stories. Got so it. I used to sit in for those teachings and I knew the software. And so I used to help people. With like, and per, what was the software you used? The software in the beginning was GarageBand. It was, you know, okay. very... Yeah, uh, the sound editing software that comes with Apple yes. computers, right? Yeah. Yes. So that was first. And then what happened was we started doing stories in Pro Tools. So I had my baby sister um, uh-huh. order me a Pro Tools book. Uh-huh. So... I can be one step up. So you like command E, slip, shuffle, all this is making you you know all these terms. I figured it out. <laughs> I definitely figured it out. You know, and then I'm I'm reading it up on 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 the side, reading about everything, trying to figure this stuff out. So me, I was more of the go-to when they're having a problem. But then Erland did a short story of his own for KALW. He filed a report on a breast cancer fundraiser walk at San Quentin. Nigel Poor, the professor who was volunteering her time at San Quentin, started to notice how observant Erlan was and how he connected with the other inmates. And she had an idea. So um, Nigel kept, you know, talking about like, hey, man, I want to do something a little different. Let's try to do a podcast. And of course, what is a podcast? <laughs> you know, like, what is that? <laughs> do, and you remember this conversation? What, what, tell me about that conversation. So uh, we was like, oh, okay, well, what is a podcast? We don't hear podcasts, you know? Mm-hmm. And she started basically telling us about it. Uh, and it was more about, like, we should tell longer-form storytelling. And our audience was actually the prison, you know? So the mission was to put it on the closed-circuit TV channel in the prison where everyone gets to tune in and listen because it's a certain channel. Like, I think it was, like, Channel 3 or something where— we used to put up content for the videos on those channels. Mm-hmm. And so we we would definitely put up the audio for those channels as well. Mm-hmm. And we was like, okay. And I was sitting there just listening to it like, hmm, sounds interesting. So what, what she did was uh, got in contact with uh, the public information officer, Lieutenant Robinson, and asked him if she could bring in a few podcasts and she gave him to him, and he he uh, listened to him, whatever, and gave him to us. And so it was snap judgment, right? Yes, yeah, snap judgment that 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 podcast hosted by Glenn Washington, right? Yeah. And so I'm listening to snap judgment. I'm like, okay. And Glenn like just made it just like seem like it was just easy. The stories was easy. I was like, we can do this. This ain't hard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what I thought, you know. Coming up, Erlan learns what so many others have learned before him, how hard it is to actually make a podcast. That's after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with podcast host Erlon Woods. Erlon and a prison volunteer named Nigel Poor, together with another inmate they recruited, Antoine Williams, began developing the idea for their new show. They decided to call it Ear Hustle, prison slang for eavesdropping. And around this time, Nigel heard about this competition called PodQuest that was being run by the podcasting network Radiotopia. The contest was an open call for podcast ideas, and the winning show would join Radiotopia's podcast network with funding and editorial support from Radiotopia's editors and producers. While we were producing our first little podcast um, in San Quentin, Nigel just so happened to come in with a Radiotopia podcast competition. Uh And she was like, yeah, if we can do this, we we can probably... Uh, if we do, you know, get our podcast together, we can probably enter this contest. What y'all think? And you know, we like, all right, cool. <laughs> did you have any? <laughs> did you know what Radiotopia was? Did you? No, nah, I didn't know none of that. Nothing, because you're you're deprived of a lot. If you can't yeah. get it on your little radio, then you're not gonna hear it. Yeah, and yeah. you 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 pretty much got to be on the yard in the middle of the yard to get you know a radio station. Yeah. Um, especially like a talk radio station or, you know, something like that. So it was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. So, you know, she asked Lieutenant Robinson and he was like, okay, all right, cool. Y'all can do your thing, you know. Um, and so we started putting together our little promo. It was like a minute and 56 seconds, our promo. Uh-huh. And it sounded so good. You know, the little promo was cool. You are now tuned in to San Quentin's Ear Hustle. I said something like, when, when you think, think about, about San Quentin... Quentin what comes to mind? Maximum security, death row, scary guys all tatted up, Johnny, Johnny Cash, uh-huh. um, this, that, and the other. And it was dealing with, you know, y'all probably, you know, hear about all the mass media bullshit that go on and this, that, and the other. And that's what we was talking. Each one of us identified yeah. ourselves. And then we told, like, what type of stories we would do if you want, you know, you want to hear from it. Uh-huh. So we submitted it. Uh-huh. And out of 1,500 and 37 other teams in 53 different countries, we were in the top 10. And I'm like, okay, cool. And we had to go through these, through these, you know, rigorous interviews with Julie Shapiro and, you know, a lot of the uh, people on their team that was making these decisions. And um, after this intense interview of how would y'all actually do a podcast in prison, we were selected for the top four. Wow. So now when we were selected for the top four, it was like, okay, you got to produce three stories. So, oh, damn, how do we do a podcast that, you know, is going to be, you know, heard in front of these people and what are they about? And now we're trying to figure it out real quick. Uh-huh. Um, that was like pretty hard to take like six hours of tape and, and, and distill it to 20 minutes. It's like, oh, this is the hard part. This is why this shit sounds so easy. Yeah. This is hard. <laughs> this is right. Hard. Take, take six hours of raw audio and turn it into 20 minutes of something that feels really compelling, right? Yeah. Yeah. That feels like, you know, people want to hear and, you know, yeah. so we end up doing that. We did three stories uh-huh. and uh, I wanted to, you know, focus on stories that, um, could affect people. Like our second story, 
um, was a story that I heard I heard about growing up, and it was called Misguided Loyalties, and it was dealing with a gang member who um, basically executed another gang member just based on the gang. And people came, the other gang came back and retaliated on his whole family. I was at my homeboy's house when the phone rings. Hello? And it was somebody I knew who was telling me that my mother and brother had just been murdered. What? Hell no. I knew right away that it was retaliation for me killing Stanford Bercy. I attempted to call my home. No one answered. Damn, I just started crying. It was unbelievable. I kept thinking in my mind, I hope it's not true. I hope it's not true. Please don't let it be true. Please don't let it be true. But in my heart, I knew that it was true. It was the most devastating moment in my life. I wanted people to hear stories like that and then decide, like, damn, is this what I want to do? So it it affected the way that um, I started looking at the storytelling aspect and, and how powerful storytelling is and, you know, what it can be used for, you know? When Erlon, Nigel, and Antoine finished their three pilots, they submitted them to Radiotopia and waited. And we found out November 1st that we actually won the pod quest. And then it was like, uh-oh, we got to figure out really how to make podcasts. Like, we... <laughs> <laughs> Did you think you guys were going to win, or was this all just sort of like... So it was, I would say this. So when we made it to the top 10, we felt good. We uh-huh. was like, okay, we got a chance, you know? Um, so when we were having all the interviews, we was like, man, this is looking good, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember when we won... Um, Lieutenant Robinson told Nigel, he said, you know what? I really only let y'all enter because I knew y'all wasn't going to win. <laughs> y'all had never done a podcast, so I was like, yeah, they ain't going to win. <laughs> <laughs> and now so, he's like, now I got to make this, now I got to figure out how to have this podcast happen. No, now, yeah, now we got to figure out how do you do a podcast from a prison and, you know, how do we do all this? So, so you started putting the podcast together, and, and but you had still at this point while you're while you're you've won the contest and now you're starting to put together the the podcast, right? You you have still at this point. Is it still the only podcast you've actually listened to? Were were the couple the, of Snap Judgments? Yeah, it was it was it was a few that uh, uh, was approved to come in, and it was mainly Snap Judgment. Um, I think. Uh, I think one of I think it could have been This American Life and Reply Reply All. It was some. It was oh, like a few of Reply All is one of us. That's exciting. Okay, yeah, you were able to hear, you know, different points of views and different and how individuals sculpted these stories together and 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 how did they lead into this and come into that. So that was like really like 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 just basically giving us the game on what we were about to embark on and uh, which was very helpful. Right, um, I, I must say. So you're starting to put together this this podcast. When did you launch the first episode live into the world? Okay, uh, so June 14, 2017 uh-huh. is when we first launched. And then right before we launched, so we 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 had we had uh, a meeting with Julie Shapiro, uh, Curtis Fox, um, 
um, Carrie editor. Hoffman. Uh-huh. Yeah. And these so, are all people from Radiotopia and your editor, Radiotopia, PRX, yeah. they whole crew. And, you know, we were sitting there and we was talking and, you know, we was just trying to figure out, like, you know, what is the, you know, what is successful, you know, downloads. And I think they was like, well, you know, if you get like 50,000 for the season, that should be good. And, and I was like, we gonna hit a million. <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh, that's what you thought. That's what I thought because in my thinking, it was like, man, it's 2.2 million people in prison. Somebody's going to, you know, really um, get this. You know, somebody's going to really, you know, get attached. So I was thinking like that, like, yeah, we're going to hit a million, uh-huh. you know. And they was like, well, you know, that's kind of, you know, that's like, you know, that like top 1% or, I mean, you know, they was they was just basically giving this new dude some game on, you know, the numbers and what, what that mean. And so I'm like... You know, okay, all right, cool. And um, so we lunch. We lunch our first episode, which is Sally's. Ear hustling is prison slang for eavesdropping, listening in to something that may not be your business. And today we're going to hear about Sally's. It's a big deal in prison who your cellmate is, isn't it? Huge. Ask anyone around here and they'll have a lot to say about their cellies. We always wash our hands, like... <laughs> In that first episode, Erlon and Nigel interview a bunch of different inmates around the prison yard about their experiences with cellmates. One of the stories is about these two cellmates who are brothers, one who's a smoker, and the other one who can't stand the smoke. And I was like trying to hold it in, trying to hold it in. It was just eating at me, and then we just clashed in the cell. And he was like, man, you're trying to kill me. You're killing me with this. You're going to kill me with cancer. And I would just kind of, I was very dismissive, like, man, shut the fuck up with that shit, man. God, man, we are in prison for life. Like, you know, I have 67 years to life. You have 27 years to life, man. I am smoking this cigarette. And um, so we, we, we put it out in the world. And again, in prison, you, you don't know, we don't see how it's being um, played in the world, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you don't everything, have social media, right? No like social you're, media, you're not no on Twitter internet. or anything like Facebook. Nobody's yeah. liking your episode or anything. You're not seeing anything. We not, we don't see nothing. No internet access. So all we have is Nigel coming in and updating on us on what's happening, you know? Nigel coming in like, yes, yeah, it's, it's, you know, people are really, you know, liking it. They're commenting and they're doing this, they're doing that. And, uh, she was basically giving us, so we like, okay, cool, cool. You know, we still at work doing other stuff. And um, that first month, the podcast had been downloaded over 1.5 million times. And I think Julian was like, man, you're clairvoyant. You know, like, <laughs> you, like, like. <laughs> well, I remember I heard the first episode. I heard Sally's when it came out, and I was just listening, and I remember thinking, like, Man, this thing is good. And and by that point, it had like shot to the top of the charts and it was like getting all this like attention and acclaim and everybody was talking about it. And I'd started this podcasting company and um we were and we were having we were pretty successful and we we had like some pretty, you know, pretty big shows, but we had like you had a bona fide hit. And I was like, man, these guys in prison are kicking our butts. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was that was interesting. Yeah. Um, but it was like pretty amazing to see. Like, what did it feel like? I know how I know what it feels like a, to have like a, a hit podcast on the on the outside. What did it feel like inside? Um, inside we was we was oblivious to all that, you know. Um, 
So the only way we knew what was going on was when, when I started getting letters from colleges, um, classrooms, and high school, like letters from all the students talking about uh, this podcast and discussing certain things in it. And it was like, this is really, you know, taking taking its own course. It's like going places I never even thought about, you know. How much mail before before ear ear hustle? Like, how much mail would you get? <laughs> so per week prior to ear hustle, you know, I got the average mail from family members. Uh huh. Every now and again, you know, people, you know, you write people, people write you, you know, uh, you can call. So I used to get pictures from family members and friends. You know, maybe maybe two letters a week or something like that. You know, uh-huh. and it went from like two letters a week to maybe 14 a week to mm-hmm. 20 a week to I can't keep up, you know, to <laughs> like, you know, when you're in prison, you want problems. Like you want to be able to, yeah. you know, have, have too stuff much to mail do. to read. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you want to have stuff to do. You, you dream of, you know, getting a bag of letters and, you know, yeah. and, and, and you even hear like of, you can hear about the one guy that's a few guys on death row. Scott Peterson was one of them. It was like, yeah, you get a bag of letters. You're like, damn, you get a bag of letters. You know, you wasn't really tripping. But then when you start getting all these letters, it's like, uh-oh. Oh, man. You, you want to respond to everybody. But it just becomes like, oh, man, it's just coming in, coming in, coming in. And I was trying to respond to everybody, too, and it was getting hard. But the main people I was more likely to respond to was the high school uh, classrooms they used to write, the college classrooms they used to write, the students used to write. And then they were doing papers. And then they were talking about stuff that was so over my head. Mm-hmm. You know, they done broke down these episodes and I'm like, wow, I'm, 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 it, this is becoming a learning session for me, you know? Yeah. So, so that, that's happening. Does your profile change in, inside the prison as a result of this? To the, to the, um, prisoners? No. It's not like you're out in the yard and everybody's all of a sudden whispering like, oh, there goes, there goes Erlon. He has, nah, a, he has a hit nah, podcast. Nah, You probably have to do a lot more. Um, than a podcast to get some major accolades from your peers. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, Erlon's podcast may not have bought him a lot of cred on the prison yard, but it did do one pretty special thing for him. That's after the break. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Erlon Woods. When Ear Hustle launched, it was a hit. So much so that Ear Hustle and Erlon started making headlines. The audio series Ear Hustle, the first podcast to be produced entirely inside a prison, has steadily grown in popularity. Within a few months, it was at the top of the iTunes podcast charts. And to date, episodes have been downloaded more than six million times. Their voice is now stretching far beyond this prison's barbed wire covered walls. And so a friend of Erlon's, volunteer at the prison, had an idea. With this spotlight on his work and having served now two decades of his 31-to-life sentence, Erlon should put in for a commutation, make an official appeal to the governor to set him free. She's like, put in a commutation, you know, because you're doing all the good work. You know, you're, 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 you're doing rehabilitative work, and, you know, you're also, you know, basically teaching the world with a podcast, you know, and, you know, giving individuals insightful information. And so, you know, you think of, you know, only people get commuted as people on death row. You're not even really tripping like that. Mm-hmm. So... I filled. I, I got the paperwork. I went through it, filled it out to the best of my ability, and I actually got an interview uh, with the. Uh, I think it was like a parole agent three. They interviewed me, and, for, and my for, process to be started eligible, going to be eligible for commutation to have your sen- yes. sentence commuted and to be released from prison. Exactly. So my process took long because it took about a year because I had to go through uh, the California Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And, and they'd had to agree with it. So I went through this whole process. And a year ago, uh, the day before Thanksgiving, um, I got the call from Governor Brown's office. Describe that phone call. What, 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 do you remember where you were? Mm-hmm. So nobody really, it's this place in prison called the Captain's Porch. This is where all the administration people be. So you don't go to this place. You don't go in there, not unless you a prisoner worker and you, you work in there. Um, so when they call me to the captain's porch. And how they do that? A guard comes or what? what no, so, no. So, so, so what happened was, you know, in the media center, it's a phone in the media center. And um, okay. somebody was like, hey, man, they got a phone call for you. Uh-huh. And I got there and they was like, uh, the governor's office um, is on the phone. And the ladies in the governor's office, they broke the news down to me saying that the governor is commuting your sentence uh, to be released immediately on parole. And I was listening to it, smiling, and I said, do immediate mean, like, right now? Like, I can go? And they was like, no, 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 we got we to process the paperwork, but within the next, in the five business days, you're gone. And I was like, okay. And this was the day before Thanksgiving, meaning the next four days is, is not business days. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, ah. Oh. <laughs> it's very appropriate to have me in one way. Because, like, yeah, boy, very, is that a lot to be thankful for, right? But on the other hand... And on the other hand, you just got to hold this information for, like, nine days. <laughs> but it was the most beautiful feeling because I was able to call my moms. And, you know, she um, was very elated that, like, oh, I'm going to have a man home. You know, me and my brother, we've we've, we've pretty much uh, been incarcerated, you know, a lot in our lives or long periods of time. So... Uh, it was a good thing, you know, and it was, it was like, it was almost like the whole prison system up until that point was like on my back, like just weighing me down, like just with a life sentence, you, you don't know, you, you just stuck, you just incapacitated basically. And when they said that, it just like, just lifted up off me, you know, and it was like, you started to, to float. It wasn't even like walking no more. It was like just... Just, it was, it was unreal. It was, man, 
the governor actually commuted my sentence out of I don't know how many people in this prison system. Yeah. And 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 I really I don't take it for granted at all because I have it was another guy in that car with us that's still in prison to 2028. Right. You know, that that was one of my co-defendants. So I look at him like I know and you know that could be me. I could still be in there. You know? So yeah. On November 30th, 2018, Erlon Woods was released from prison on parole. There was an official letter from California's then-Governor Jerry Brown announcing his commutation. Governor Brown writes, Mr. Woods has clearly shown that he is no longer the man he was when he committed this crime. And as evidence of that, the governor goes on to say, quote, He has set a positive example for his peers and through his podcast has shared meaningful stories from those inside prison. For all of these reasons, I believe that Mr. Woods is ready to be released on parole. When you look back on your whole experience, like, how do you, what story do you tell yourself about that? Of course, I have to, you know, looking back, I have to blame myself for um, getting out there, you know, getting into the criminal activities. Um, but I think it was just me, um doing what was being done in my neighborhood and not having the um, discipline to not go into that into that trade or not go that route but it was it was it was heavily accessible I mean everything from drugs um, weapons everything was accessible in the neighborhood you know a lot of my friends I ran into in prison you know right it was like it wasn't a bad thing growing up like it was more like that's what's up, man. You know, the homies got heart, you know, straight up heart, you know. It's it's almost, it's like a badge of, it sounds like it's almost like a scene of, it's a sign of success. It is. It's a badge of honor, badge of success. Um, but just to even think like that, you right. know what I'm saying? Like, you know, a lot of us got um, our first felonies when we were like 14 years old, you know, and mm -hmm. that pretty much takes you out the whole system. Like, you know, when you have a felony, it's, it's, it, it limits you, Um in the future, like it limits your jobs, it limits everything. Mm -hmm. So we need to come up with, you know, how do we stop this cycle? You went from an era where it was tough on crime, uh, super predators and this, that, and the other. And now it's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. There's a story behind all this. Right. Let's see how we can, you can change it, change this story. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, through what we do, we're able to open people's minds up to something beyond a headline or something beyond that to where, you know... It's a, it's, a, it's a story of how people got here. Good or bad, it's a story. When Erlan got out of prison, he had a job waiting for him on the outside as a full-time producer working on Ear Hustle. The fourth season of Ear Hustle is out now. In it, Erlan tells stories of re-entry from the outside, and Nigel Poor is joined by a new co-host to tell stories from inside San Quentin. Ear Hustle is part of the Radiotopia Podcast Network from PRX, it's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick, Rob Zipko, and Hiba Elarbani. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor, mixing by Keegan Zema, music by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, follow the show. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.